So wanted to solve that problem of, I want to declare an incident as, as fast as I can. That basically gets all of the necessary process, but not process that's helping me solve the incident out of the way. So again, you know, creating that ticket, updating people quickly. Now we're much more focused on reliability. We don't think that reliability is an engineering metric. We, we truly believe that it's a business metric because people view reliability of a business from the business holistically. My name is Robert Ross, but people call me Bobby Tables, and I'm the CEO and co-founder of FireHydrant. This is Code Story, the podcast bringing you interviews with tech visionaries who share in the critical moments of what it takes to change an industry and build and lead a team that has your back. I'm your host, Noah Labhart, and today how Robert Ross, aka Bobby Tables, created the reliability platform for every developer. All this and more on Code Story. Robert Ross, also known as Bobby Tables, has been into building stuff since he was 12 years old. Around that time, he Googled how to make a website, learned from an online tutorial, and has been hooked on development ever since. He started making websites for people he knew in San Diego, which allowed him to facilitate his Xbox and Xbox Live needs. Post high school, he started working for a web consultancy, then went on to the next thing and the next, and he feels very lucky to have made the stops he made in his career. He's grateful for his early work at an agency because it required him to move quickly. Eventually, he was an on-call engineer, either by accident or intentionally, because he always wanted to help solve the problem. At one point, he set out to bridge bootcamp grads into the real world of software through a video series. As it turns out, the product he was building during the series was much more interesting than the videos themselves. This is the creation story of Fire Hydrant. Fire Hydrant, it started off as a tool to help with incident management. So as an on-call engineer, I would get paged and have to declare an incident, run a whole process, create a Jira ticket, create a, a status page update. And it felt really tedious and kind of taking away from the thing that I wanted to do, which was mitigate the problem, right? You know, I have a bunch of customers going to the customer support team, which is then being relayed to me. Why is my inbox blowing up? I'm just the on-call engineer trying to solve a problem. So wanted to solve that problem of, I want to declare an incident as, as fast as I can. And that basically gets all of the necessary process, but not process that's helping me solve the incident out of the way. Now we're much more focused on reliability. We don't think that reliability is an engineering metric. We, we truly believe that it's a business metric because people view reliability of a business as from the business holistically. Uh, so for example, if Netflix goes down, nobody is going to say Netflix's engineering team is having an outage. That's not how we talk about things. We say Netflix is down. So Fire Hydrant is a tool for companies that want to bring a level of service ownership into their organization, bring really nice incident management processes that are followed consistently. And once the incident's done, we'll show you your entire timeline of everything that, that went down during the outage or whatever degradation you're fixing. And that allows you to kind of spend much more time thinking about, you know, how do we get to this point? What were the multiple, what were those contributing factors that brought us to this outage and how can we help prevent those again? And so the cycle repeats. 
the way that fire hydrant started was i wanted to close the gap or not close it but create a bridge from where a lot of boot camps uh were having their graduates end so there's a lot of uh boot camps teaching folks how to write code now and there's this kind of promise that when you're done with this boot camp you'll be able to go work at a company and write software for a living fire hydrant was this video series where I bought a bunch of like recording equipment and software and started recording the, the creation of Fire Hydra. I showed how I wrote tickets. I showed how I did entity relation diagrams. I then would show every commit was a video, uh, its own individual video. So like you know, 15 to maybe 45 minutes uh, per video. And I would do a git commit at the end of the video. That was the feature. Next video would start building the next feature. And the thing that I was building was Fire Hydrant. I didn't want to build a contrived example like a, a to-do app or something like that. I think that's kind of overdone. It doesn't really give you the depth of a production piece of software. So Fire Hydrant, the very first 40 hours of building Fire Hydrant is all recorded with commentary, with screencasts of me writing code. And eventually I had a friend say, hey, the, the, what you're building, Fire Hydrant, is way more valuable than the web series that you're actually building and releasing. Um, and they were right. So I actually, one day, I just I got up early on a Saturday morning and went to a coffee shop, didn't record. And as it turns out, no surprise, you go way faster when you're not trying to explain live and record live uh, what you're doing. So Fire Hydrant started taking its shape uh, very quickly after that. Let's dive into the MVP. So that first product you build after, you know, perhaps during the video series too, yes, but then even after, how long it take to build and what sort of tools you use to bring it to life? It is a Ruby, Ruby on Rails application. I've been writing Ruby for a long time and I thought, you know, why why use a new shiny technology? And also because, because of the origin of Fire Hydrant of helping, um, you know, bootcamp graduates leave uh, the bootcamp and go to production-ready software. Um, you know, a lot of bootcamps are still doing Ruby and Ruby on Rails, and they still are. So that was also a big contributor to why our stack is Ruby and Ruby on Rails. Um, and we wanted to kind of build it as like an API-first way of thinking as well. Like we wanted everything to have an API. So we used Open API spec and uh, Ruby Grape for API. Uh, it initially started on Heroku, but it moved pretty quickly to Kubernetes. And our MVP, the initial MVP was, let's help people create an incident in Slack channel uh, and retrospective as fast as humanly possible. We wanted to make a very slick command in Slack for any on-call engineer, or really any engineer, uh, to declare an incident. So after the seed round hit in uh, December of 2018, uh, me and my two co-founders, Dan Connemitty and Dylan Nielsen, we did not stop writing code for four and a half months. Like we just we just wrote code. And in April 2nd of uh, 2019 is when we did our initial launch. And it included declaring an incident, doing retrospectives, creating action items, um, paging uh, folks out on, on pager duty. Uh, and it was it was a really kind of like cool system that we had built as our launch MVP. And it, it, it garnered a lot of interest on, on day one. Uh, and actually a couple of companies that signed up on that day are still uh, customers of ours today. Sticking on the MVP a little bit longer, t with any MVP, 
right? You got to make certain decisions and trade-offs about what you're going to do and not do, you know, and, and what sort of debt you're going to accept from a technical standpoint. So tell me about some of those decisions and trade-offs that you had to make and how you coped with them. I think the biggest trade-off we made was not having trade-offs. So there was something that we kind of agreed on early is that we know we, we wanted to make a bet on ourselves. Um, I think that technical debt is necessary. Uh, you have to cut corners at certain points to uh, you know, hit due dates and customer demand. Like That's a necessary thing you have to do uh, when building software in, in a startup. One of the things, and one of the things that we kind of did is we didn't want to go for the multi-tenanted model um, off the bat. Uh, so fire hydrant, you know, a lot of companies are like this today and doing just fine as we are you know, single, single database. That was one thing that we kind of uh, made a trade off in the early days. But then we started to layer in other things that kind of gave us the ability to switch off of that model in the future. So we actually baked in. Uh, we engineered in a way that we know that we can start splitting the database later on by using uh, account ID records, uh, identifiers on every single record in the database. So every single record in Fire Hydrant has the account ID that it, that data belongs to. And we actually restrict every query to include the account ID. So while we made a trade-off on the tenanted model, we kind of found the middle ground of, well, we're probably going to do this in the future. So let's figure out a way we can engineer this in now. Um, and so when we eventually do do it, it's some big deal. I'd say another trade-off that we made is um, we had a really kind of like simple deploy setup and it's still the same way today. So I, I don't even know if I could count it as a trade-off because it's still cruising three years later. Um, but we didn't go fancy with like manual judgment steps on deploys. We didn't, it was just, you know, the moment that our main branch is is green, it gets deployed. and. You know, for some companies, that's like the desirable state, but it, in some ways it felt like a trade-off to me as well. Um, but it, some of the things that like we didn't trade off on was we are not going to attach everything to our database model. Like we actually have, we followed a relatively good design pattern of repositories and domain-driven design because we wanted to be able to split things out. Uh, later, because eventually we are confident that we're going to split things into microservices. So, honestly, we're, in, in terms of technical trade-offs, maybe I would do it differently again if, if I ever do another startup. Like maybe actually add a few more trade-offs because we uh, went a little crazy, honestly, <laughs> with some of the design decisions. No, to have no customers and be on Kubernetes, like what? What were we doing? <laughs> no business doing that. From that point. How did you progress the product and, and how did you mature it? And I, I think to, to kind of wrap this question in context, how did you build your roadmap and decide, okay, this is the next most important thing to build? As our, as our product progressed, we were incident management retrospectives and that was, that was the thing we sold. That was what people came to Fire Hydrant to buy and use. And where that kind of progresses, we noticed that we would start talking to people and our process of fire hydrant, the way that we, the way that we uh, instilled the processes for these companies was declare an incident. You're going to get a Slack channel. You're going to get a Jira ticket. You're going to get a status page update every single time for every incident you open. 
And for larger companies, that's just not how they work, right? A SEV4 incident may not want a Slack channel yet. But if a, if a SEV4 is open for more than an hour or a day, then yes, we need to create a Slack channel for that and pile everyone into that channel to, to coordinate on how we're gonna solve this minor degradation. And our product didn't allow that at the time. It was a very you know, static way of, of doing things. So we went to the drawing board and we thought, well, how do we make our product flexible for anyone to create their own process? And that's where Runbooks were born. And we sat in a room and we just, I think I still have the Google Doc, we just tossed in a million bullet points of like what Runbooks could do. Like create a Slack channel based on the severity and uh, only, and can we repeat a step? So if someone hasn't updated the status page in an hour, like it can tell the person. And we chopped off a lot of the stuff in those bullets, but eventually we set off in, in for two and a half months and built Runbooks. And that's where any customer can come in and say, well, this is the process that we have today. And we say, great, you can do that. Um, you can come in and add that to your Fire Hydrant Runbook. And then Runbooks became, it became even more clear that Runbooks were the way forward for us. And all of our technology currently and in the future is somewhat, is gonna be based on Runbooks or be leveraged by Runbooks in some way, shape or form. Um, and now, now we're adding better conditional logic so people can say, well, if my if a service from the service catalog has a tier three uh, label and production is impacted, uh, run this runbook. So now people have like this very flexible way of of actually uh, creating their processes in Fire Hydrant. Um, and the way that we kind of do our 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 roadmap now is we've gotten very sophisticated. We've we've hired some really amazing product people, uh, and we have a whole scoring system where. You know, does this help us retain customers? Does this help us attract new ones? Um, does this help? Does this uh, impact the way that we can build software in the future in a positive way? And we have a an algorithm that basically says, well, these are the things that probably make the most sense to build next. Uh, and we also have a way of doing like we have a project right now called Project Sparkle, where uh, just really small things like can we do a hundred things this month that would make our product better. Um, so it's still, we're still very much a startup in that we, we're not very, very strict in the way that we plan our product. We're, we have, we have processes and, and rigor around it, but there's always, there's always some curveball that that's going to be thrown at us. Let's switch to team then. So how did you go about building your team and what did you look for in those people to indicate that they were the winning horses to join you? If I were to rank the lucky things to happen in my life, it's you know raising money on accident, I would say, and the people that we've hired. I mean, our very first engineer we hired, I think it was May of 2019, our, our very first hire, actually. It was, so it was me, Dan, and Dylan. And then we hired this gentleman, Justin, who's still with us today. And keep in mind, like we're all three, all three of us are engineers. All three of the co-founders are engineers. We have never built a company. We have never done sourcing for recruiting, none of that. So I saw that this Ruby meetup was happening in New York City and we were desperate for a new engineer. We had to make a hire. And I went to this Ruby meetup and I told Dan and Dylan, I'm, gonna, I'm not leaving this Ruby meetup until we hire someone. I go to the Ruby meetup and I'm standing next to this gentleman, Justin. We kind of had like that awkward moment where you know you're about to have a conversation. Like, you know what, it's just kind of a game of like who's gonna say hey first. And we started talking and Justin said, 
the words that I was hoping someone would say while I was there. It's like, yeah, I'm looking, I'm looking for a job right now. And that was the first time to hire and whew, where are we elated. And Justin has built some of the most critical features at Fire Hydrant and including runbooks. But then we started getting a lot more mature with our hiring. We brought in recruiters. We had a recruiter, uh, Jill, who just has like this knack for finding amazing people that can build amazing software or manage people or lead people amazingly. And it was kind of a counterintuitive thing. I think that a lot of startups are money money conscious um, and as, as they should, right? Like money is, is not infinite at, in the earliest days. It's never infinite, so you should be. But we kind of acknowledge that you know, we are building the product. We are spending a lot of time trying to do the sales, the marketing, all of that aspect of it in the, in the beginning. So we said, whatever, we'll, we'll pay someone, you know, the premium to help us find great people. And I think I would run that play again and again and again. It is just so worthwhile to use recruiters outside recruiting help to find amazing people. We ran that play with engineering, ran that play with our sales team. I think 95% of our sales team has been through outside recruiters um, and, and also marketing. Like it, it's just, it has been such an amazing way to do it. And then we've matured even more and now we have an internal recruiting team that does the same thing. Um, and we have a really, we're, we're focusing and we're getting even more and more mature uh, with our recruiting processes and you know figuring out, well, what are some of the more underrepresented parts of the business that we should be sourcing for exclusively for a period of time uh, to make sure that our business is incredibly diverse and equitable and inclusive to the world outside. Um, so it's been a nice progression um, and a lot of like great lessons learned that I'll take to wherever I go next. And I know that, that sounds crazy for the CEO of a company to say like wherever I go next, but I don't think that this is my last rodeo. That's really interesting about on the re recruiter side, um, and and you're challenging my internal thoughts on uh, external recruiters just because I haven't had great experiences. But it sounds like you've had fantastic experiences. Our our company would not be the way it is today without the external recruiters that we we had. Um, I think that we have a really strong referral program right now too. Um, I think five or so like recruits that are like new employees coming in were referrals. Um, so making sure you have that early as well um, has been has been really helpful. Uh, and yeah, I, the, I'm like scared to even say any more about our recruiters because like you never know who's out there, right? So, like, but definitely look into it. I, I think there are some really, really genuinely great recruiters out there and they are worth the money. Let's switch to scalability then. And, you know, being on Kubernetes uh, before you had customers leads me to think I know where you're going to go with this, but I'm going to ask it very generically. Did you build this to scale efficiently from day one or are you fighting this as you grow? The reason that we're on Kubernetes is that myself uh, and our head of engineering, Daniel Kahnemitty, we had both been, you know, doing building things on kubernetes for a couple of years at that point actually so i had i was running kubernetes in production at my last job namely when it was kubernetes 1.2 um and it is a very very different platform than it was back then now um but it was basically you know i had the experience i i was experienced with containers and deployment pipelines with them and just kind of made sense and dan was doing the same thing dan was at 
CoreOS and then Red Hat. So also a ton of experience with the, the tooling, tooling. So, you know, we just kind of went with the technology that was the most fresh in our mind. Uh, not the, maybe not the tool that was right for the job, but I also could see that as, you know, if you're trying to find the tool that's right for the job and you go in the earliest days of something like a Heroku or some other platform as a service that you don't actually know, you know, maybe is that worse? I don't know. But what the tool is also, you know, I, I was at DigitalOcean for a little over a year and was there during like a crazy amount of growth was at Namely. Uh, during a crazy amount of growth, like tens of millions in ARR added while I was there. And um, the the thing that I noticed is that if you don't build in something that will scale uh, well later on, you're you're really kind of hurting yourself. So Fire Hydrant, we use uh, asynchronous. We use uh, event event sourcing, I should say. My engineering team would probably hit me if I said that, but we definitely leverage uh, event-based architecture. So we're using Google PubSub for a lot, a lot, a lot of functionality of Fire Hydrant, uh, which gives us topic-based subscriptions, which is unlocks a lot of power and horizontally scales very nicely. Um, the other parts of our application that are built to scale is that, you know, we, we built in, uh, Again, going back to like domain-driven design, a lot of our application uses something called readers, writers, updaters, and destroyers, which is a layer that we have on top of Ruby on Rails's uh, active record. And the reason that we did that is because it gives us a unified interface to interact with basically any data in the Fire Hydra platform. And what that also unlocks for us later on is when we want to add like role-based permissions, because we have this singular reader object for everything that it, that inherits from the same application reader object in the application you know it's actually not that much engineering effort to to get to that role-based permissioning it's it's a solid amount of effort but the it's much less time and you're not like rebuilding the world uh to add that and the reason that we did all of those things is because we saw the roadblocks like the technical debt that uh, DigitalOcean had and namely had and you know a pass other past experiences from our engineers including Dan that startups just kind of hit this wall where their data model doesn't make sense and the way that they've written their code was so you know fast and furious that they hit this wall where they can no longer release features so we wanted to kind of preempt that and have really good design early on so when we get to that point you know we've we've it was over-designed in the earliest days, but we are seeing the rewards of those designs today, every all the time. Like we can build and release features at a very rapid clip. We've won deals in the sales cycle because we could build a feature that the customer was missing. This was like a year ago. We could build a feature literally in a week and show the customer and it was production ready. And the customer went, I have never seen a startup your size build something this fast. And it's because of these abstractions that we have built and these interfaces that we have built and using PubSub in the earliest days that gave us this crazy amount of leverage uh, as an engineering org, um, which is another key takeaway. Like I will take that to every company I go to next is like having those early, early abstractions. It's compounding interest. It, that's what it is. Like good abstractions in the earliest days, compounding interest. I totally get 
get that. And I think that makes a ton of sense. It's not just, you know, you got scaling infrastructure, you've got scaling your team, but it's also scaling your architecture and, and building in such a way that you're, you know, sort of prepped for the future whether it be a, you know, a stubbed out placeholder for something or uh, a hierarchy, like, like I, I kind of feel like you're where you're going um, to, to where you had this abstraction layer to be able to build on top of later. So I think that's totally cool. There's a lot of elegance in solutions like that too, to be, there's a lot to be proud of there. It's spending a good amount of time on designing the messages that get passed around your systems. You know, I think it's Abraham Lincoln is like, if I'm given five hours to chop down a tree, I'm going to spend four hours sharpening the axe. That's what we did. Well, as you step out on the balcony and you look across all you've built, what are you most proud of? The, the team, 100%, the team. Yeah, the software is amazing. The product is great. Our business model works. Our team is, our team is outperforming any expectation that I think I would have had. Like we have several publicly traded companies worth billions of dollars using our tool. And that is something that I would have never expected. We were, you know, keep in mind, this, this tool started as a silly little video series where I was like cursing <laughs> Noko Geary not installing correctly on camera. And then like going to a Starbucks in the early days, I know New York City and Starbucks, I don't probably lose fans by saying that, but you know, they were open early, they had great Wi-Fi, and there was no expectation that this tool was gonna to be used by the caliber of these companies. And and we're still we're not even three years old. We're gonna hit three years old in December. And kind of stepping out on the balcony, like the people that have gotten us to where we are, the 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 engineers, the salespeople, the marketing, the the solutions engineers. I can't even begin to say how impressive our solutions engineers are too. Like they blow my mind how like convincing they are. Um, and I, I don't think I could have built any software that would ever be more, that would be more impressed with than the team that works at Fire Hydrant. Because the way that we think of our, our business is that you you it's a, it's a circle and there's three parts of it where you have you need great people to build a great product to have a great business. And that's and if you don't have great people, you can't build a great product and therefore you won't have a great business. So definitely out kind of like looking at where we are today and where we're going, it's it's a hundred percent the team. Well, let's flip the script a little bit. Tell me about a mistake you made and how you and your team responded to it. <laughs> oh, okay. So I'm I still say I'm a software engineer. Um, and the way, you know, I, I'll get on a call and be like, my name is Robert Ross, I'm a software engineer, but you know, lately I'm a CEO. Uh, and so that was actually a mistake, was not letting my like greasy palms off of my editor and building things and <laughs> releasing code. There were so many other things I could have been doing in the early days. And I, I kind of kicked myself, I'm like, wow, where, where would we be today if I had, you know, not built that silly little feature that one customer asked for and, you know, in, instead went and hired another person or built another marketing campaign or, or anything not engineering. You know, what what was the opportunity cost of doing the thing that I just like to do instead of what was the right thing for the company? Because 
I think every startup book out there says like your product is probably further along and more monet, you know, monetizable than you think. Uh, that's where I was a year and a half ago. I would say as I was still up in my editor writing features, and I and I, I shouldn't have been doing that. That was a mistake. I think another mistake was not. I think I, I think a mistake that we had was not kind of like solutioning into the product. Um, more ways to use it. So our product is super flexible. And with great flexibility comes a, a problem of enablement. We have people that have joined, uh, created a, a free tier fire hydrant account to get in there and they start looking at it and they're like, I don't even know where to begin. And that's a problem. And I think that we, and we're much better at this now, this is a year and a half ago, a year ago, um, where we started thinking, well, what is the experience of actually getting up to speed with our product and we have a long ways to go we're actively working on this um, but it's definitely those those are two pretty big mistakes um, i would have focused on marketing day one i think that that was because marketing is another one of those compounding interest things in the business for sure uh, so i think that I, I i would have focused a lot more of that on that uh, in the early days that makes sense both both those make sense it's difficult too with the the user experience one though, and the type of product you're you're building. I don't know. It, it's it, it's difficult, and it's it's a problem that feels like maybe it's appropriate timing to start addressing those things. I don't know, but what, what do you think about that? It feels like sure you could focus on user experience, but maybe that's something that if you went back, you would do differently. But perhaps it's paying off dividends with the timings right. I don't know. What do you think about that? I think the the way I would solve it. I think the way I would solve it is just by strictly focusing kind of on product-led growth. So you have your top-down sales motion where you have maybe cold emails, cold calls, and and that that can work for you. And that's that's going to someone that holds a credit card. And then you have your bottoms-up motion, which is kind of more the more product-led growth. And we're a developer tool, so there's a well-known kind of art to developer tool expansion and, and you know grabbing the market, which is let folks come in create a free tier account, play around with it, get, you know, don't really block access to anything, kind of like block maybe the number of users or number of pieces of data they can create, but like, you know, full access to most of the features. The reason that I like that now in the time that we've been doing this, I've noticed that that's what creates, that's what kind of is the just right time to build better onboarding. Because you're building your onboarding in lockstep with the features you're building. And it actually kind of makes you rethink about the feature too, right? Like, are we, it, this feature this seems pretty complex. How are we going to onboard someone onto this? And now you've introduced this part of the story that may not have existed because you were just focusing on on the feature and the solution that you were trying to provide to someone, but not how do you even get them to the point where it solves the problem. Um, and so I would definitely say that I would just lean on like a product-led growth strategy because that's when you start to build a really good product because your product has to be easier to use. And it kind of is a self-fulfilling thing. Well, tell me what the future looks like for your product and for your team. The future of Fire Hydrant. We're looking at reliability wholesale. Um, incident management is a part of it. Service ownership, service catalogs is a part of it. Status pages retrospectives, all, all of that is a part of it. And those are all things that we do today. Um, but we want to make sure that all of our features are kind of any feature that we build 
is multiplying the value of another feature, not adding to. And what I mean by that is, we don't want to build anything moving forward in this charge towards reliable, reliable software. We don't want to build anything in our product that doesn't lift the ships that already exist too. So as an example is we have our service catalog enhancements uh, that are coming out and we have incident management and run books. And we could have built service catalog standalone and added all the features that we did. We added service tiering and better linking and team ownership, all, all of these like, nice features that anyone would need in a service catalog. But, and that's a value add. You're summing the value of those things to your product. But when you start to add those things, how can you make those new features multiply the value of your product? So our runbooks functionality, well now runbooks, we added the ability to say, well, if a service with the service tier uh, is greater than, let's say four, so it's four or five, then run this runbook. So now we've not only added the value of you know service tiers and team ownership, which is valuable on its own to the service catalog, We've also made that value extend and multiply the value of just a little bit more of runbooks. And that's where we're going with the whole thing is we want everything to kind of have a Venn diagram effect uh, moving forward. But our vision for the business and what we're trying to do here is we, we envision a world where all software is reliable. And we're, you know, we're all software people here. This podcast is called Code Story. And I know everyone probably hears that like reliable software all the time, everywhere is probably like, what the heck, right? That is a, and that's why it's our vision is that it's so out of reach. We're always going to be chasing this. Software is always going to be evolving. The problem is going to change that we're never going to run out of things to build. We're going to have things to build for the rest of time um, with that vision. But if we can help all of the companies that are using us make their experience for their customers reliable, that's, that's our motivating force. We want all of our customers, we want their paying users to look at their product about, wow, this this is as efficient and as reliable as the water from my sink or the electricity in my walls. Like it just, it works. And we want to help companies get to that point. So let's switch to you, Bobby. Who influences the way that you work? Name a CEO, CTO, an architect, really any person. Name a person you look up to and why. I think I look up to the people that are around me that are doing things because they want to do them. And I, I let me try to clarify that. So kind of going back to this whole marching band thing um, and drum corps, so there's this interesting thing in drum corps where you would think you're performing for people, so you're getting paid. You have to audition to do this thing. And and um, for all the drum corps out there, you actually are paying to be a member of it. So I kind of look back, that was a big motivating thing for me as I, I think back to the days that I did uh, drum corps international. Granted, I did the open class division, which is you know, I just had a full-time career still, so it was hard for me to take more time to do the world-class, but it was a lot of the same, uh, a lot of the same challenges. And I think about those basically kids and young adults out there paying to do this thing, to be sweating like crazy, playing very difficult music, and putting on a wool uniform in the middle of summer in Indiana uh, to go perform in front of tens of thousands of people, like. That is a big motivating thing for me because 
that is an intrinsic motivation. Like there is nothing in the world. Like if I were to really get in, if we had more time and explain this activity of drum corps, no one in their right mind would do it. But it's just this crazy intrinsic motivation that anyone that does this activity and continues to do it has. And I think about that all the time, actually. It's like, why, you know, that is the hardest I've ever worked. So anything, in, and there's nothing I'm going to do in this startup life that will be harder than that. So I look, I look up to everyone that ever did that activity. I also look up to, I look up to people that kind of come over, uh, I'm, I'm forgetting the word, but really overcame their own demons and their own like problems. I, I come from a very, uh, you know, my social, my economic background as, as a kid, not economic background, what's the socioeconomic, I think is the word I'm looking for. As a kid, like we were very poor. We were, you know, we had food stamps at one point. It was, it was not the, the life that, you know, everyone should have and, or anyone should have, I should say. And I kind of look back at that and I think a, a motivating factors than the people that like helped me and, and all the times that someone gave me a helping hand, even if it's just 20 bucks. I still remember every time someone just gave me $20 to like help me buy food that day. Um, th I kind of, that's a big motivating thing is like I'm trying to prove like that was worth it to help me. Um, I want to make sure that they all feel like this was, yeah, that was, I'm so glad that I did that because that helped him, me so much. So I don't really have like a big person. Like if we're looking for like, Elon Musk or anything like that. I don't really look up to those folks, actually. I kind of look more to the people to my left and right. Well, we talked about a mistake, but a little bit different spin. If you could go back to the beginning, what would you do differently or where would you consider taking a different approach? I don't think I would have raised money when we did. It was an opportunistic raise um, and very grateful for it and our investors are amazing. But I think that I would have liked to have felt the need for money when the product had a little bit more traction and had a little bit more meat on the bone. Because um, venture capital is something that, you know, when you take it on, there's an expectation at the end of it, right? There, you're, you want an exit, everyone wants it, I want it. Our, our investors want it, our employees want it. They all have options too. So I think I would actually want to get a little bit further without that maybe emotional burden uh, before taking on venture capital. I would want to have a lot more to show uh, because that, that's when you get the confidence. We had no confidence, right? Like we, we raised this money and, and the very first thing, I hope our investors don't listen to this, the very first thing we bought with that one and a half million dollars was a couch. We bought a pullout couch because Dylan needed a place to sleep and in New York City. He moved from San Diego to New York City. And so the very first thing we bought, because we wanted to basically like cherish this money, is have Dylan sleeping on a couch um, in my one bedroom New York City apartment. So you can imagine how cramped it was. And I don't think I would want to do that ever again. I, I think I would want to just try to do it on the side, get right off from whatever employer I have. and. Try to try to get just a couple paying customers, even if it's ten bucks a month. Just get that validation before you take on venture capital. I think that that's something I would change. Well, last question, Bobby. So you're getting on a plane and you're sitting next to a young entrepreneur who's built the next big thing. They're jazzed about it. They can't wait to show it off to the world. Can't wait to show it off to you right there on the plane. What advice do you give that person having gone down this road a bit? 
stay excited at by at, at any cost stay excited if you don't feel excited like figure out why and go go find a way to be excited um as this, as ceo as an entrepreneur you we're a hierarchical organization at fire agent you you're almost a a generator in a way of energy um and if you're not excited about the thing that you are building it's going to be really hard for anyone in your company to be excited and for your customers to be excited and your investors to be excited so the moment you don't feel excited and there there will be a moment that you don't feel excited and you may not want to work at the company that you started go do some introspection take a day off figure it out and and figure out why you don't feel excited and the once the moment you figure out why you're not excited go solve that problem that's your new biggest problem there's no other problem that will supersede why you don't feel excited about the thing that you are building and i could give that advice i think you know i'm a young entrepreneur right i don't i don't even, i haven't even hit my 3 year mark so i feel weird being this confident but i there have been moments where i'm like what am i doing why am i not excited about something in the moment i go figure that out the the just you know it's a reversal and yeah that's what i'm going to say that's great advice well bobby thank you for being on the show today thank you for telling the creation story of fire hydrant thanks so much for having me and this concludes another chapter of coat story Code Story is hosted and produced by Noah Laphart. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or the podcasting app of your choice. Support the show on patreon.com slash codestory for just five to ten bucks a month. And when you get a chance, leave us a review. Both things help us out tremendously. And thanks again for listening.